Joel 2, 15 to 24, a sermon I've entitled, The Deliverance of Israel in the Day of the Lord. And this is what it says. Blow a trumpet in Zion. Consecrate a fast. Proclaim a solemn assembly. Gather the people. Sanctify the congregation. Assemble the elders. Gather the children and the nursing infants. Let the bridegroom come out of his room and the bride out of her bridal chamber. Let the priests of the Lord's ministers Weep between the porch and the altar and let them say, Spare your people, O Lord, and do not let your inheritance uh, become a reproach, a byword among the nations. Because, uh, why should they say among the peoples, Where is their God? Then the Lord will be zealous for his land and will have pity on his people. The Lord will answer and say to his people, Behold, I am going to send you grain and new wine and oil, and you will be satisfied in full with them. And I will never again make you a reproach among the nations. But I will remove the northern army far from you, and I will drive it into the parched land and a desolate land and its vanguard into the eastern sea <coughs> and its rear guard into the western sea, and its stench will arise and its foul smell will come up, for it has done great things. You know, whenever you come across a word that ends with the letters O-L-O-G-Y, like an ology, it indicates that it's, the word speaks of some field of study. For instance, biology is the study of bios, life. Psychology is the study of the mind. Geology is the study of the earth. And cosmology is the study of the universe. Now, I have a book in my library that's entitled Israelology, The Missing Link in Systematic Theology. Now, the author of the book is uh, Arnold Fruchtenbaum, who is the director of Aerial Ministries, a California-based organization that seeks to evangelize and disciple Jewish people. Now, Frachtenbaum has an interesting past. His parents were Orthodox Jews who lived in Poland, but fled to the Soviet Union when the Germans invaded in 1939. But rather than welcome his family, the Russians accused his father of being a Nazi spy, and so they exiled him to Siberia, where uh, in 1943, uh, Arnold was born. Now, after the war, the family returned to Poland, but in 1947, with the help of the Israeli underground, the family escaped to Czechoslovakia, but then the communists took over there as well, and so they had to flee to West Germany. Finally, they emigrated to the United States, and they settled in Brooklyn, New York. It was there, at 13 years of age, that Arnold came to believe that Jesus was indeed the Jewish Messiah. But his parents rejected his newfound faith, and so Arnold was forced to leave his family. He later went off to study Hebrew and Greek and then moved to Israel to study at the uh, American Institute of Holy Land Studies and uh, also at the Hebrew University in Jerusalem. It was there, he was there during the time that the Six-Day War broke out. Well, he graduated from Dallas Theological Seminary, after which he started Aerial Ministries, and at 79 years of age, he still teaches and lectures widely across the United States. Now, by titling his book, Israelology, The Missing Link in Systematic Theology, Fruchtenbaum was asserting that you really can't understand the Bible and what God is doing in history unless you understand the place of Israel in God's plan of salvation. I mean, think about it. The Bible is a Jewish book. All of its authors, except for one, were Jewish. The whole Old Testament is focused on Israel. And when you come to the Gospels, the story of Jesus of Nazareth, he's a Jew who claims to be the Messiah and the Son of God. All Jesus' early followers were Jewish. And even when the church expanded onto the Gentiles, that was in part because of the rejection of the Jews of the gospel message. So they're still tied into 
the story. Now, a lot of Christian theologians think that the story of Israel really ends when you come to the New Testament. They'd say something like this. Well, the Jews rejected Jesus as their Messiah, so God has rejected them from being his people. Yes, individual Jews can be saved by trusting in Christ and, and so become part of the church, but for the nation as a whole, there is no future. God is just simply done with the nation of Israel. Are they right? Has God rejected his people, Israel? The Apostle Paul utterly repudiated that idea by saying, may it never be. And as we saw, as we looked through Romans chapters 9 to 11, Paul argued that Israel did not stumble so as to fall, meaning permanently, but by their transgression, salvation has come to the Gentiles, people like us, to make Israel jealous. Now, if their transgression is riches for the world and their failure is riches for the Gentile, how much more will their fulfillment be? Paul knew and taught that a partial hardening has happened to the nation of Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles comes in, and so all Israel will be saved. Just as it's written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will remove ungodliness from Jacob. This is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. You see, Paul, along with all the New Testament writers, assert that the nation of Israel will indeed someday accept Jesus as their Messiah, as a result of which they will be saved. But to understand the events that lead up to that conversion, you have to study Old Testament prophecies. Well, the prophet Joel opened his book speaking of a terrible locust plague that his country had recently experienced. But as devastating as that was, he told them that that was just a foretaste of a more destructive invasion that would come during the day of the Lord. That invasion would not be a, a swarm of locusts, but rather a vast army that would strip their land and destroy everything in its path. Well, in light of this coming destruction, Joel calls on the people to repent of their sins and to return to the Lord with the hope that he would indeed deliver Israel from her final demise. Well, the deliverance of Israel and the, in the day of the Lord, that's what we want to think about today. And so to do so, let's pray and then get into the text. Father God, I do pray for grace and mercy. Help us to see and understand what's here. It's kind of uh, complicated, but I think if you give me the grace, I can explain it in a way that can be understood. So bless us now, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, there's three words that can be used to describe this section of Joel's prophecy. The first one is repentance. Repentance, that's 15 to 17. The second is restoration, and that's verses 18 to 19. And finally, rescue, and that's verses 20, and that's where we're going to spend most of our time in that last point. So just a reminder, so you're clear on your understanding of what the day of the Lord is. The day of the Lord refers to a future time at the end of the age when God will intervene in history in a dramatic and direct way so as to rescue his people and to destroy his enemies. And when you get to the New Testament, the apostles tell us that the day of the Lord, the Lord of that day is none other than Jesus himself. So it's tied to Jesus' return. Now you might recall that Jesus himself, knowing that Israel would reject him as their Messiah, wept over the city saying this, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those sent to her. How often I've wanted to gather you, your children together, just as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, and yet you would not have it. Behold, your house will be left to you desolate. And I say to you, you will not see me again until the time comes when you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. In other words, when you'll finally accept me as your Messiah. Well, the Jews will someday hail Jesus as their Messiah, but they're going to go through some dark and terrible times before that time comes. And one of the things that uh, they will have to endure is an invasion of a massive army coming from the north. Now, knowing this is so, the prophet called the people to repent and to return to the Lord. And that brings us to our first point, repentance, in 15 to 17. Now, we're not going to spend a whole lot of time with this because we looked at these verses last week already. 
I mentioned then that uh, the Greek word for repentance, metanoia, means to change your mind, specifically about your actions, your deeds, and your thoughts in light of God's law and his commands. It says in Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. None of us have lived up to even our own standards, let alone God's. I mean, one of the things that I think has really bothered a lot of us during the lockdown with COVID was just the hypocrisy of our political leaders who demanded that we all mask up, stay home, and don't let anyone come within six feet of us. And yet those same people were found uh, uh, breaking all their own rules. I mean, you have to have a mask, but they don't. You can't leave your house, but they can. One mayor confronted with the fact that she went out to get her hair cut uh, while she forbid others to do the same, justified her actions by saying she's a public official and it matters how she looks. Well, rules for thee, but not for me. Well, none of us live up even, as I said, to our own standards, and we certainly don't live up to God's. And so we need to repent and turn from our sins and return to God. And that's what Joel is calling the people to do when he says this. Blow a trumpet in Zion. He wants everybody to hear this. Consecrate a fast. Proclaim a solemn assembly. Gather the people. Sanctify the congregation. Assemble the elders. Gather the children and the nursing infants. Let the bridegroom come out of his room and the bride out of her chamber. Let the priests of the Lord, Lord's ministers weep before the porch and the altar. And let them say, spare your people, O Lord, and do not make your inheritance a reproach, a byway, byword among the nations. Why should the people, among the people, say, where is their God? Now, when facing disaster and destruction, we should be begging God to spare us from what's to come upon us. A couple of days ago, at a fundraiser, President Biden was asked about Vladimir Putin's latest threats. He said this, Putin was not joking when he talks about the use of tactical nuclear weapons or biological or chemical weapons. We have not faced the prospect of Armageddon since Kennedy and the Cuban Missile Crisis. Is he right? Are we possibly facing a nuclear war with Russia? Wow. I mean, that would mean the death of millions upon millions upon millions of people, probably us included. And yet, do you hear anyone in America calling us to consecrate a fast? proclaim a solemn assembly? Are our political or religious leaders calling on God saying, spare your people, O Lord? No. Instead, we're doubling down on our efforts in our sexual revolution. Well, in the future, in the day of the Lord, when the nation of Israel is facing its darkest point in history, God is still going to be calling on those people to turn from their sins and turn back to him with the hope that he would deliver them. And of course, that's what God is calling all people to do. That's what he's calling you and I to do to return to him before it's too late. God offers forgiveness to all who will turn to him by trusting in Christ's death as the payment for their sins, his death on the cross. This is the best offer you're ever going to receive, but listen carefully, it's a limited time offer. Someday it's going to expire. That brings us to our second point, though, the restoration. What's the first word of verse 18? Then. In other words, after you repent, after you turn to me, then. Then the Lord will be zealous for his land, and he will have pity on his people. Addressing the people of Israel through the prophet Zechariah, God said this, Therefore saith the Lord, thus saith the Lord of hosts, Return to me, declares the Lord, so that I might return to you. God can't return to us with blessings until we return to him in repentance. But when we do, we find that he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins, and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We sing a hymn that has these words in it. There is a fountain 
filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's knit veins. And sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains, lose all their guilty stains, lose all their guilty stains, and sinners plunge beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. Speaking of a time when Israel will finally return to God, it says in Zechariah 13:1, in that day there will be a fountain open for the house of David and for the inhabitants of Jerusalem for sin and for purity. Now, as a sign of his anger against the nation of Israel, God had sent a terrible locust plague which devoured their crops and left them facing famine and starvation. But then, after they repent and turn back, God says this in verse 19, The Lord will answer and say to his people, Behold, I'm going to send you grain and wine and oil, and you will be satisfied in full with them. By the way, just that oil thing. Ukraine is the largest producer of sunflower oil, which is used through most, most of the Middle East. There isn't going to be a crop of sunflower oil this year. You know, most of us in the Western world, especially in America, we just take food security for granted. I mean, because you've always had food to eat, you think you always will. I had a college professor who grew up during the Depression. His dad had died when he was young, and his mom was raising two boys by herself. And that's back before they had a lot of help for people. He said that when they uh, didn't have food to eat, his mom would smear uh, lard on his face so it at least looked like they had eaten when they went to school so the kids wouldn't make fun of them. Well, because of the war in Ukraine, millions of people in Africa and the Middle East are facing food shortages. And that could happen in our country as well. We might someday soon be praying earnestly, give us this day our daily bread. He says, and I, I will never again make you a reproach among the nations. Jews have been persecuted and mocked, hated and hounded in almost every country they've ever lived in. But someday, that's all going to change. Speaking of this time of restoration, God says in Zephaniah 3.20, He says, At that time I will bring you in, even from that time when I gather you together. Indeed, I will give you renown and praise among the nations of the earth when I restore your fortunes before your eyes, says the Lord. God is going to restore blessings to his people. But that brings us to a third point, rescue. Verse 20. But I will remove the northern army far from you, and I will drive it into a parched and desolate land, and its vanguard into the eastern sea, and its rearguard into the western sea, and its stench will arise, and its foul smell will come up, for it has done great things. Now, some commentators believe that this chapter, just like chapter 1, is still talking about a locust invasion. And so God is promising here that he'll deliver Israel from the plague of locusts by driving them uh, off into the sea, the eastern sea, and some into the western sea. I think the other commentators are right when they suggest that while it is true that he's talking about a locust plague in chapter 1, when you come to chapter 2, he's actually envisioning an invasion of a foreign army which is going to be so vast and devastating, it'll be like locusts had come through. Uh, that's why the translators of the NASB, New American Standard Bible, uh, have the, pass, uh, the word army in italicized. It's not in the original text, but they're suggesting that that's what the meaning of it is. And so the stench that will arise after God destroys this army is not from piles of dead locusts, but from the rotting corpses of the soldiers that God's going to destroy. But here's the question. What army is being destroyed? And what or when is this prophecy to be fulfilled? Now, something it's speaking of the invasion by the Babylonians. That happened in Jeremiah's day. But this invasion happens in connection with the day of the Lord, which I showed last week, has to do with Jesus' return. Now, if that's the case, the invasion is still future yet from our day. Does the Bible speak, though, somewhere about an invasion coming from the north against Israel? Yes, it does. 
Ezekiel chapters 38 and 39. Why don't you take your Bible and turn there? We're going to read through them. Ezekiel 38 and 39. Here's what it says, starting in verse 1. And the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, set your face towards Gog of the land of Magog, the prince of Rosh, Meshach, and Tubal, and prophesy against him, saying, Thus saith the Lord God, Behold, I am against you, O Gog, prince of Rosh, Meshach, and Tubal. I will turn you about and put hooks into your jaw, and I will bring you out, you and your army and horses and horsemen, all of them splendidly attired, a great company with bucklers and shield, all of them wheeling swords, Persia and Ethiopia and Put will be with them with shields and helmets. Gomer with all its troops. Beth to Gomer with, uh, from the remotest parts of the north with all its troops. Many people with you. Now, I have to say that just because a prophecy in Ezekiel talks about an army coming from the north does not necessarily mean it's talking about the same event that Joel is. But I think as we read through this, you'll see that it actually is. Well, I think we see these prophecies uh, that speak of events that will happen at the time of Jesus' return, the day of the Lord. But to understand what's being spoken here, we have to identify somebody, a person called Gog, and some of the places that are mentioned in connection with it. Now that Gog is an individual person is indicated by the fact that God addresses him as an individual. You'll hear that as I read through the text. Gog is evidently the leader of this vast army because he's called the prince of Rosh, Meshach, and Tubal. Now popular commentator John Wolverd argues that Gog is a, a reference to a future Russian leader. He notes that in verse 6, this army is coming from the remote part of the earth, of the north. Now, if you were to take a map and take a pencil and just draw a straight line north from Israel, the last country you'd come to is the country of Russia. Well, he also points out that uh, the name Russia is derived from Rus, which sounds a lot like Rosh, and that Meshach he suggests is Moscow, and that Tubal is the Russian province of Tobolsk, which is the oldest settlement in Siberia. Now you add all that to the fact that the uh, Jewish historian uh, Josephus identifies Magog as being with the Scythians, uh, a nomadic group that lived north of the Black Sea in what is now uh, Russia and the Ukraine. But here's the problem with that interpretation. The name Russia, which comes from Rus, is uh, actually a Nordic uh, language origin. The Rus were Nordic merchants that migrated from countries like Sweden and Norway uh, to that area and settled there. The Bible isn't written in Nordic languages like Swedish and Norwegian. It's written in Hebrew. Rosh and Rus may sound alike, but there's no linguistic connection between them at all. Secondly, the word Rosh actually means in Hebrew head, like Rosh Hashanah means head of the new year, beginning of the new year. So I think the English Standard Version actually does a better job translating it this way. Son of man, set your face towards Gog of the land of Magog, the chief, meaning Rosh, chief prince of Meshach and Tubal. Prophesy against them. Well, if the land of Magog and Meshach and Tubal aren't references to Russia, then what's being spoken of? Actually, I believe it's the modern-day country of Turkey. Almost all the older commentaries argue for this. Turkey is also north of Israel. By the way, in Revelation chapter 17, the Apostle John sees a woman riding a beast that has seven heads, remember, and ten horns. The angel explains the meaning of the beast when he says this, The seven heads represent seven mountains on which the woman sits, and they are also seven kings or kingdoms. Five have fallen of these kingdoms or empires. 
One is, and one is yet to come. And when he comes, he must remain a little while. The beast which was and is not is himself also an eighth and one of the seven. And he goes into destruction. The ten horns which you saw are ten kings who have not received a kingdom yet, but they will receive authority as kings and, uh, with a beast for one hour. They have one purpose, and that's to give their power and authority to the beast. Now the kingdoms that are represented by the seven heads here are kingdoms that have oppressed or occupied the land of Israel. There's five that have fallen. That would probably be Egypt, Assyria, Babylon, Persia, Greece, specifically under the Seleucids. The one that exists in John's day is Rome. And then there's one yet to come. Okay, when the Roman Empire fell, maybe I should ask this, when did the Roman Empire fall? Paul's not here to answer this question. Huh? Well, a lot of people would say 476 A.D., but the eastern half of the empire lasted another thousand years until the fall of Constantinople against the Ottoman Turks in 1453. So the one yet to come from John's day would be the Muslim Ottoman Empire, ruled by the Sultan from Turkey. Now the Ottoman Empire lasted from 1453 to 1923 when the Ottomans were on the losing side of the First World War after the Western powers broke, afterwards the Western powers broke up the empire and Turkey became a secular state under a man named Mustafa Kemal, also known as Ataturk. Now recently I started reading a book entitled Muslim Nationalism and the New Turks by anthropologist Jenny White. She traces the move of Turkey over the last 30 years from the secularism of Ataturk into an embrace of political Islam. The dream of Turkey's leaders today is to reestablish the Ottoman Empire with one of the leader over the entire Muslim world. Now let me ask a question, what if they pull it off? And what if there's some great leader empowered by Satan over this reestablished Ottoman Empire? Might that not be what the angel was speaking of when he said the beast meaning the Antichrist, which was not, or was, is not, and is himself an eighth, is one of the seven. I think Gog here is another name for the end times figure that we call the Antichrist. I think it's he who's going to lead this massive army against Israel with the hope of doing what Hitler tried but failed to do, liquidate the Jews. Now, by the way, notice some of the names that are mentioned here of some of these ancient countries. Persia, that's modern-day Iran. Ethiopia, if you have an ESV, yours says Kush. That's actually the modern-day country of Sudan. Put is Libya, with all of them, with all their shields and helmets. Gomer, that's the area of the Caucasus regions, like Dagestan, where we used to support missionaries. And with all of its truths, Beth to Gorma, which is perhaps Central Asia, and from the remotest parts of the north, with all of its troops. Now, interesting, every one of those countries is a Muslim country. Look at verse 7. Be prepared. Prepare yourself, you and your company, and assemble about you and guard them. After many days, many days, you will be summoned. In the latter years, so he's talking about end times events, you will come into the land that's been restored from the sword, whose inhabitants have been gathered from many nations. Since 1948, the Jews have been coming back to Israel in large numbers. To the mountains of Israel, which have been a continual waste. But its people were brought out from the nations, and they're living securely, all of them. You will go up and you will come like a storm. You will be like a cloud covering the land, you and all your troops and your many people with you. Thus saith the Lord, it will come about in that day that thoughts will come into your mind and you will devise an evil plan. And you'll say, I'll go up against the land of an unwalled villages. 
I will go up against those who are at rest, living securely, all of them without walls and having no bars and gates, to capture spoil, to seize plunder, to turn the hand against the waste places which are now inhabited and against the people who are gathered from the nations, who have acquired cattle and goods, who live at the center of the world. Sheba and Dida and the merchants of Tarshish, with all of its villages, will say to you, have you come up to capture spoil? Have you assembled your company to uh, seize plunder, to carry away silver and gold, to take away cattle and goods, to capture great spoil? Therefore prophesy, son of man, and say to Gog, thus saith the Lord God, on that day when my people are living securely, will you not know it? You will come from your place out of the remote parts of the north, you and many people with you, all of them riding on horses, a great assembly, a mighty army, kind of like a locust plague. And you will come up against my people, Israel, like a cloud to cover the land. It shall come about in the last days that I will bring you against my land so that the nations may know when I am sanctified through you before their eyes, O Gog. So he's going to use this king to sanctify his holy name. Thus saith the Lord God, Are you the one I spoke of in former days through my servants, the prophets of Israel, who prophesied in those days for many years that you, I would bring you against them? It will come about in that day when God comes against the land of Israel, declares the Lord God, that my fury will mount up in my anger, in my zeal, in my blazing wrath. I declare that on that day I will surely, there will surely be a great earthquake in the land of Israel. The fish in the sea and the birds of the heaven, the beasts of the field, all the creeping things that creep on the earth, and all the men who are on the face of the earth will shake in my presence. The mountains will be thrown down. The steep valleyways, pathways will collapse. And every wall will fall to the ground. I will call for a sword against him on my mountain, declares the Lord. Every man's sword will be against his brother. With pestilence and with blood, with, I will enter into judgment with him. I will rain on him and on his troops and on as many people who are with him a torrential rain with hailstones and fire and brimstone. Gog is going to bring down his army to destroy the Jews, but what he doesn't know is, like a great puppet master, God is leading him on the path of destruction to bring him into the land so the Antichrist can be destroyed by Jesus. And he will do this to magnify my great myself and sanctify myself and make myself known in the sight of many nations. And then you'll know that I am the Lord. Listen to how God turns the heart of the king in the direction that he wants. Look at starting in chapter 39, verse 1. And you, son of man, prophesy against Gog. Thus saith the Lord God, Behold, I am against you, Gog, prince of Rosh, Meshach, and Tubal. And I will turn you around and drive you on and take you from the remotest parts of the north and bring you against the mountains of Israel. I'll strike your bow from your left hand and dash you down your arrows from your right hand. You'll fall on the mountains of Israel, you and all your troops and the people who are with you. I will give you as food to every kind of predatory bird and beast of the field. Let me stop there for a second. Did you know Israel has more types of birds than any other country in the world? Because it's the crossroads between the migration patterns from Africa to Europe and from Asia to Africa. Do you know there's been more Israeli jets that have been downed by birds hitting their, their engines than were ever downed by the Syrian Air Force? He says, You'll fall in the open field, for I, it is I who have spoken, declares the Lord. And I will send fire upon Magog and those who inhabit the coastlands in safety. And then they'll know that I'm the Lord. My holy name I will make known in the midst of my people Israel. I will not let my holy name be profaned anymore. And the nations will know that I am the Lord, the Holy One in Israel. Behold, it's coming, and it shall be done, declares the Lord. This is the day which I have spoken. 
Then those who inhabit the cities of Israel will go out and make fires with the weapons and burn them, both shields and bucklers, bows and arrows, war clubs, spears, and for seven years they'll make fires with them. They will not take any wood from the field or gather firewood from the forest, for they will make fire with the weapons, and they will take the spoil of those who despoiled them and seize the plunder of those who plundered them, declares the Lord. Great reversal. On that day, verse 11, I will give Gog a burial ground in Israel, the valley of those who pass by the east of the sea, and it will block off those who had passed by. So they will bury Gog there with his forces, his horde, and they will call it the valley of Hemon Gog. Now for seven months, the house of Israel will be burying them in order to cleanse the land. Even all the people of the land will bury them. The whole nation is going to go out and they're going to have this gruesome duty of burying all the corpses of the people that God had destroyed. Look what it says in verse 14. They will set apart men who will constantly pass through the land burying those who are passing through, even those left on the surface of the ground in order to cleanse the land. At the end of seven months, they will make a search as those who pass through the land pass through anyone seeing a man's bones, then he will set up a marker by it until the barriers have come and buried it in the valley of Haman Gog. And even the name of the city will be Hamana. So then the land will be cleansed. As for you, son of man, thus saith the Lord, speak to every kind of bird and to every beast of the field, assemble and come gather on every side to my sacrifice, which I'm going to sacrifice for you, a great sacrifice on the mountain of Israel is that you may eat the flesh and drink the blood. You may eat the flesh of mighty men and drink the blood of the princes of the earth as though they were rams and lambs and goats and bulls, all of them fatlings of Bashan. So you will eat fat until you're glutted and drink blood until you're drunk. From my sacrifice, which I sacrificed before you, you will be glutted at my table with horses and charioteers and mighty men, all of the men of war, declares the Lord. And I will set my glory among the nations and all the nations will see my judgment, which I have executed and my hand, which I've laid on them. And the house of Israel will know that I am the Lord their God from that day onward. The nations will know that the house of Israel went into exile for their iniquity because they acted treacherously against me. I hid my face from them. So I gave them into the hands of their adversaries and all of them fell by the sword. According to the uncleanness and their, according to the transgressions, I dealt with them and I hid my face from them. And what will happen after God rescues Israel by Jesus, their Messiah, who they rejected for 2,000 years? It says in verse 25, Therefore, thus saith the Lord, now I will restore, that's the same word we saw in Joel, isn't it? The fortunes of Jacob, and have mercy on the whole house of Israel. I will be jealous for my holy name. They will forget their disgrace and all their treachery with which they perpetuated against me when they live securely in their own land with no one to make them afraid. When I bring them back from the peoples and gather them from the lands of their enemies, they shall, then I shall be sanctified through them in the sight of many nations. Then they will know that I am the Lord their God because I made them go into exile among the nations and then gathered them again in their own land and I will leave none of them there any longer. I will not hide my face from them any longer for I will have poured out my spirit on the house of Israel, declares the Lord. All right, turn back to Joel chapter 2. I want you to see again what it says in verse 20 and see if that helps you understand just that phrase. It says this, But I will remove the northern army far from you. I will drive it into a parched land, its vanguard into the eastern sea, and its rearguard into the western sea, 
and its stench will arise, and its foul smell will come up, for it has done great things. And you remember that the last thing that Ezekiel spoke about in chapter 39 was God pouring out his spirit over the house of Israel. Now look over at verses 28 to 29 of this passage. It'll come about after this that I will pour out my spirit on all mankind, and your sons and daughters will prophesy, your old men will dream dreams, and your young men will have visions. Even on your male and female servants, I will pour out my spirit in those days. See that there's a connection between all these events? Okay, that's a whole lot of, and it sounds like, wow. It's like, that's like a, 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 a drink from a fire hydrant. And obviously I could preach probably 30 sermons just on this, but I wanted you to get the overall picture and understanding of what it means when it says this northern army is going to be invaded. But let me, let me give you four things that I think we learned from these texts that we just went through. Here's the first one. God is holy. God is holy. Now that's only a problem because we're not. He said in that text, My holy name I will make known in the midst of my people Israel, and I will not let my holy name be profaned anymore. How many people do you know who use Jesus' name as a swear word and do so about every tenth word. The Bible tells us that God has given Jesus a name which is above every other name so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow and every tongue confess. The Jews don't even, they, the Jews refer to God as Hashem, which means the name, because they don't think they should use the name of God lest they blaspheme him. Can you think of anybody else in history whose name is used as a swear word other than Jesus? God says, that's not going to happen anymore. Because when I'm done, and those fields are filled with corpses as far as the eye can see, they're going to realize they don't talk about my son like that anymore. Secondly, God is powerful. It doesn't matter how big of an army the Antichrist assembles. It doesn't matter how many demons are behind him in the force. Because we know from the scripture that Jesus is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And he's going to send fire, it says, and destroy the coastlands and the countries that they're being sent from. He's going to destroy the people in the field with hail and fire and brimstone. God is powerful. Number three, God is faithful to keep his promises. He promised Israel at the very beginning that if they sinned, and continued to sin and ignored the warning of his prophet, someday he would send him into captivity. He did that, and they were in captivity for 70 years under the Babylonians, but then they came back. But then they rejected their Messiah when Jesus came, and he sent them into captivity for almost 2,000 years. But he promised even at the very beginning that he would not utterly reject his people, and the time would come when he would restore them. That time has not come yet, but it will. Why? Because God's faithful to keep his promises. And that's what you should build your life on, the promises of God. Because everybody else is going to let you down and you're going to let yourself down. Here's the last one. He's gracious to those who turn to him through his son Jesus. Joel's going to say this at the end of the chapter, and everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. For on the Mount of Zion in Jerusalem, there will be deliverance, as the Lord has said, even among the survivors whom the Lord calls. So that's the problem. You know, I mentioned that before that I had a confirmation kid who, he didn't have much interest in spiritual things. And I asked him one time, I said, have you ever asked God to save you? 
So why do you think he would? The Bible says you have not because you ask not. Some of you have heard the gospel time and time again. Are you begging God to save you? To change your heart so you believe? So your sins would be forgiven? So that you could have eternal life? Just shrug your shoulders? Say, eh, means nothing to me. I got video games. Well, let me tell you something. The life that we enjoy, this nice, easy life where girls do nothing but do TikTok and boys do nothing but video games, that life may be coming to an end pretty quickly. And depending on what goes on in that war, it may, we may not be here to see life after that. Wouldn't it be weird if this was the last sermon you ever heard? And you left saying, eh, maybe next week I'll think about it. You may not have next week. The Bible says, today if you hear my voice, do not harden your heart. Today is the day of salvation. Now we focused on just one aspect of end times events related to the day of the Lord, but I think you can understand why Arnold Fruchtenbaum called Israelology the missing link of systematic theology. I mean, if you think about the Bible's storyline as being a, a railroad, that endpoint destination would be the kingdom of God. The, the passengers would be those who by faith have trusted in the Lord. The train leading it down the track to its destination would be Jesus. But the track itself would be Israel's history, both past, present, and what's yet to happen in the future. And I have to tell you, as a preacher of the gospel, my job is to remind you that this train is bound for glory, this train, and to call out again and again, all aboard. Get on the glory train by trusting Christ. Let's pray. Our Father in God, lots of people hear the gospel, but it's like water going off a granite statue. It never sinks in. But Lord, it's not that people are unaffected by it, because even for the unbeliever, there's a nagging fear that perhaps that what this guy is talking about is actually true. So Father, I pray that you'd bring conviction to hearts, that you'd open our eyes to the fact that we have all fallen short of your glory and that it's a huge deal. And the fact that you've been patient with sinners up to this point does not mean that you are not going to bring judgment because this passage tells us that you most certainly will. Father, we don't know what's going to happen in this war that's going on now. It may fizzle out or it may lead to a third world war. We know the effects of the last two world wars. There were millions and millions of people who died. We pray whatever our fate is, Lord, that we would trust you because there's no other person that we can trust but you. So I pray for each one here, Lord, for those who know you, that it would strengthen their faith and they would look forward to the day that Jesus returns. And for those who don't, that they would wake up and that they would understand the peril that they're under. So bless us now, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.